Well, good morning. It is good to be here with you again in Carrick. Thank you for your uh, warm welcome. And uh, I really enjoyed being here the last time, especially the, uh, the church lunch. I know you don't have that after, but it is really good to be here. Well, as we come to God's word, I wonder if you could turn with me to the book of James, New Testament letter. James, we're not going to be thinking about Christmas just yet, but I hope this message will have kind of Christmas undertones to it as we think about it. This morning, I want to focus on James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, but we'll read from verse 19 down to the end of the chapter. This is James chapter 1, 19 through 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Well, we have a weighty task ahead of us of hearing God's word. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his help. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this letter tucked away in the back of the New Testament, a letter that speaks of the Lord Jesus, a letter that applies his teaching to our everyday life. Father, we do pray that as we think about these two verses at the end of James chapter one, we pray that you would help us, that you would illuminate our minds to see what is really here, and ultimately we would see the Lord Jesus and glorify him and want to worship him more and more. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, I wonder if Christians have a trademark. Do Christians have a trademark? It's very easy to recognize some of the biggest and best trademarks or logos in the world. Think about it. You only do need to glance up at that yellow M in the sky to know that you're McDonald's. That yellow M has become the international fast food symbol symbol for fast food, you only need to glance at the laptop or the phone with the half-eaten fruit logo on the back to know that it's an Apple product. That bitten apple has made Apple billions of dollars. You need to glance at the parcel with that swift orange tick on it to realize that you've bought from Amazon. What about farming? Well, even I know that you can't mistake that yellow and green deer bounding towards you that means you're looking at a John Deere recognized in, in farms and fields all across this country and all across the world. Companies want you to recognize their product in a matter of seconds. More recognition, more sales, more profit. 
And so they try their best to create a trademark that you can recognize at merely a glance. I wonder if Christians have a trademark. I wonder if Christians should have a distinguishable and recognizable trademark. Well, in James chapter 1, verse 26 through 27, James tells us that Christians should be distinguishable and recognizable in this world. James is writing to Jewish Christians who have fled persecution and are living across the Mediterranean. And this is what he writes to teach them. He writes to teach them about faith in action. What it means to have true faith. What it means to know Jesus as Lord in all of life. Here's what he tells them. Faith must produce fruit. Faith must produce fruit. And throughout this opening chapter, he's been teaching these believers that true faith responds to suffering. We see that in the first eight verses. Then he's been telling them that true faith responds to trouble, 9 through 15. And then he told them that true faith responds to God's word. We see that in verse 19 through 25. But now in these last two verses, he summarizes his teaching by reminding these believers that their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ must be distinguishable and recognizable by three specific marks. And these marks must mark your life too. And so what are these marks of true faith? Well, here's the first one. The faithful control their tongue. The first mark of true faith is the control of the tongue. Look at verse 26 with me. Look what it says. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. For James, control of the tongue is the litmus test of true faith. Now, let's be honest, that's probably not what we expected James to say. So often, whether we think it or not, we measure our devotion, the genuineness of our faith on all sorts of other things. Here's a couple. We measure our devotion on church affiliation. Well, I belong to Carrick Baptist Church, and I don't belong to that church up the road or down the, down the road or in the next town with all of its problems. I'm devoted to God. Or maybe we measure our devotion on the basis of service. Not only do I go to Carrick Baptist Church, but I also serve in Carrick Baptist Church. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I help at youth, at the youth uh, YF and at Sunday school. I do more than most. I'm devoted to God. Or maybe we measure it on the basis of personal devotion. I've got a very good Bible plan going, or maybe I'm going to start one in the new year after Christmas. I pray regularly. I give generously. I'm pretty devoted. And yet you'll notice in verse 26 that James doesn't mention any of those good things, does he? No, instead he says that controlling the tongue is a mark of true faith. Controlling that three-inch muscle behind an army of teeth. Notice that James uses very specific language in verse 26. He says, he writes to the one who does not bridle his tongue. What's he saying? What's James saying here? Well, controlling the tongue means keeping a tight rein on the tongue, doesn't it? He talks about the bridle. That bridle, it's headgear that is put on the head of the horse, which holds the bit in place, that small metal piece that is fitted between the horse's teeth, and it's connected to the reins. And so when the rider pulls to the right, 
what happens? Well, the horse's head moves to the right. And when the rider pulls to the left, what happens? Well, the horse's head moves to the left. The rider is able to have absolute and complete control over all of the horse's movement. And James says, the man who does not have that sort of control over his tongue does what? Well, he, pro- he proves that his faith is worthless. It's meaningless. It's not true faith at all. But the person who does control their tongue proves that their faith is genuine, proves that real transformation has happened in their hearts. Now, here's a question. What is so significant about this small muscle? Why is controlling it a mark of true faith? Well, despite its size, the tongue causes a lot of damage. We know that the headlines are full of stories about the damage the tongue causes, how an MP has had to apologize for the international damage they have done with their words just three weeks ago. The Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, resigned because of her opinions on the situation in Israel and Gaza. It's not just the politicians behind a microphone who cause damage with their tongues, but your tongue and my tongue are powerful weapons that both damage and destroy. Just track with me through this letter to see how James describes the power of the tongue. If you flick through with me, look at chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. We use our tongues to self-justify, to blame others. What about chapter 2, 3 and 4? We use our tongues to be critical of others. Verse 16 of chapter 2, we use our tongues carelessly. Verse 18 of chapter 2, we use our tongues to make superficial claims. Chapter 3, verse 9, we use our, our tongues hypocritically. Chapter 4, verse 11, we use our tongues to slander and to judge others. Chapter 4, verse 13, we use our tongues to boast about ourselves. Your tongue and my tongue are tools that we build ourselves up with and weapons that we fire to put others down. That's what this letter is teaching us. Your tongue brings destruction. Listen to what James says in chapter 3, verse 8 about the tongue. He says that the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And we automatically think, of course it is. So many of my work colleagues prove that. I know that, right? But then look what he says in verse 9 of chapter 3. He continues, With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is talking about us. Believers, Christians, we come to sing praise to God on Sunday, and on Monday morning, we curse people made in the very image of the God we praised. One indictment of Christians. One indictment of believers. Piece of gossip passed on as a prayer point. Nasty text, crude joking, the skies boasting about our achievements, slander of others, and we don't even realize it. We are deaf to the very muscle that we use to create speech and sound. And you might say, but everybody does it. It's not that serious. Oh, James, come off it. Or perhaps you realize the power of your tongue, but you're questioning why controlling your tongue is a true mark of true faith. 
Well, listen to what Jesus said about the connection between the heart and the mouth in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. This is our Savior speaking. This is what he says. He says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's Jesus saying? Your tongue reveals the state of your heart. Your tongue reveals the state of your heart. If you go, if you go to the doctor, not knowing what is wrong with you, what's one of the first tests they do? Well, they examine your tongue, don't they? Because it reveals physical sickness. If your tongue is coated, you've got a fever. If your tongue is yellow, you've probably got digestive issues. The tongue shows physical diseases. And here, James and Jesus both, both agree that there is a direct correlation between your heart and your tongue. Your tongue shows the state of your heart. It shows who you really are. And if you claim to have true faith, to be a believer, and have not bridled your tongue, then all you're doing is deceiving yourself. That's what James is saying. You're lying to yourself. James has already told us in chapter 1, verse 22, that the person who hears God's word but does not obey, will they deceive themselves? And here, the person who can't control their tongue lies to themselves about the true state of their heart. James is crystal clear. That person's religion is worthless. God isn't deceived no matter how hard we try. And so if we x-rayed your tongue after church this morning, what would the scan reveal about your heart? Would it reveal a clean heart that produces good and proper and upright speech or a sinful heart that is filled with hypocrisy? What would your heart reveal? You see, controlling the tongue is a litmus test of true faith. And so, Believer, you need to get a grip on your tongue. In the same way that that rider bridles the horse to have complete control over its every movement, you need to take control of your tongue. But how do you handle a deadly weapon like the tongue? Well, Paul has some helpful words for us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Listen to the Apostle Paul speaking. This is what he says. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it might give grace to those who hear. How do you control the tongue? Well, God's word to you is, firstly, speak no sin. Don't let a word that may dishonor God or others pass your lips. All manner of evil or malice or deceit or hypocrisy or envy or slander. Speak no sin. None. That is your responsibility as a believer. You don't just wake up and magic, magically have control of your tongue. You must, with God's help, get a rein on your tongue. Your words, your text messages, your conversations, speak no sin. But Paul says something else, doesn't he? How do you control your tongue? We'll look at the text again. But only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Speak no sin, but speak to build others up. 
We speak hastily, don't we? We speak irreverently. We speak unsparingly. And yet God wants us to use our tongues graciously. How do you handle a deadly weapon like the tongue? Well, you handle it with care, don't you? And so before we fire that deadly weapon, here's a profitable question to ask yourself. Will these words destroy or will they build? And so the first mark of true faith is control of the tongue. But James provides us a second mark of true faith, and that is that the faithful show practical compassion. Look at verse 27, the first half of it with me. He continues on, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. James has just informed us that worthless, empty, meaningless faith belongs to the person who has no control of their tongue. But now he says that true faith belongs to him that shows practical compassion to others. Now so often we think that true faith or acceptable worship before God is evidenced only by how we relate to God. And that is true. Because we believe, as Christians, in the importance of a personal relationship with God. One, but one for us by the Lord Jesus. But James goes further in this verse, doesn't he? Because he tells these scattered believers in the first century, and us in Carrick Baptist in the 21st century, that true faith is not only evidenced by how we relate to God, but it's also evidenced by how we relate to others. True faith is not only determined by that vertical relationship with God, but by that horizontal relationship we enjoy with one another. And in, chap in verse 27 of chapter 1, James uses the example of afflicted widows and orphans. And he says that you're to show practical compassion to them. Now, why does James use the example of widows and orphans? Children who have lost parents and women who have lost husbands and are now suffering as a result. Why does he focus in on these two groups of people? Well, ultimately, orphans and widows were the neediest and the most vulnerable people in the ancient world because the man of the home provided the income. There was no state help no government benefits, no funding programs. And so if the father or the husband died, women and children would ultimately starve. And so orphans and widows represent the most helpless and hopeless in society. Let me illustrate this with an example from 1 Kings chapter 17. Some of you may know this story, others may not. But in 1 Kings chapter 17, God informs the prophet Elijah there's going to be drought in the land of Israel. No rain, no crops get watered, no food, people die. It's a pretty bad situation. But God tells Elijah to go to the city of Zarephath, where he will find a widow. And that widow will give him a morsel of bread, literally a handful of bread. And so Elijah obeys, and he goes to the city of Zarephath, and he finds a widow, and he asks her for this morsel of bread. Listen to how she responds to Elijah in chapter 17, verse 12. Listen to her current state of affairs. 
She says, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and for my son that we may eat it and die. You see the helplessness of the widow and her son? No food, no help, hunger setting in, facing death. Well, James says that the mark of true faith and genuine worship of God is to visit orphans and widows, the most helpless and hopeless and vulnerable in our society, in their suffering and their affliction. It's to show practical compassion to the neediest and the weakest and the vulnerable, the people who we might not ultimately associate ourselves with, because ultimately our God shows practical compassion to the helpless, to the vulnerable, to the desperate. We see this so clearly throughout the Bible, don't we? We see it in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses tells Israel that Yahweh, their creator and their sovereign God, does this. He executes justice for the fatherless and for the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. God loves the vulnerable, and he expresses that love by providing for their physical needs. Or what about Psalm 146, verse 9? The Lord upholds the widow and the fatherless. He supports and he sustains them. Our God does that. He doesn't leave them in their affliction. He comes alongside them. And ultimately, God's practical compassion shines through in the Lord Jesus, who publicly rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees for exploiting and oppressing the helpless widows and orphans. And even when he was being crucified, what did the Lord Jesus do? Well, he looked to his mother and said, woman, behold your son. And he looked to his beloved disciple and said, behold your mother. He cared for his mother in that situation, a widow. Our God shows practical compassion, and so must you. Those Israelites, they were to show compassion to the helpless because God ultimately had shown compassion to them in their helplessness as slaves in Egypt. And how much more then should we show practical compassion to those who are vulnerable in our society when we remember God's compassion towards sinners like us, when he sent his son into the world as a baby, a helpless baby that we will be remembering over these next few weeks, who came to live a perfect life and die on our behalf. We need a cleansing, and Jesus cleanses us from sin with his blood. We needed our wounds to be healed, and Jesus binds up our open wounds with his sacrifice. We needed a home, and Jesus rescues us from spiritual poverty and invites us into his family. We needed to be fed, and Jesus truly satisfies us with himself and will do for all eternity. God has shown practical compassion to you, and so you're, you're told to go and show it to others. How do we do that? Because we are so busy going about our own, our own lives, aren't we? And we don't realize the need in our church, in our town, in our neighborhood.
Well, each of us can begin by praying for those in need, that ultimately God would be their source of joy and peace and strength, because ultimately their spiritual needs are the most important. And so this Christmas time, I wonder if there's someone in this church, in your context, in your neighborhood, a family member who you could commit to praying for regularly. I'm sure if you ask the elders or the deacons, they would love to tell you of someone who could benefit and would love your prayers. And yet, James emphasizes the physical aspect of compassion in these verses, doesn't he? He says, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And so this Christmas time, could you commit to visiting or helping someone practically in this church? Visiting them to spend time with them? Reading with them or praying with them? Collecting groceries for them or giving them a lift to church at a time that is so cherished by so many? Again, I'm sure if you were to ask the elders or deacons, they could help you with that. But know this, all practical compassion must flow from a realization of God's grace to you. And so all of us must ask God to help us marvel at all that he has done for us so that we might show practical compassion to others. That is religion. That is faith that is pure and undefiled. And so we've seen two marks of true faith. The faithful control their tongue and the faithful control show practical compassion. These are necessary, but they're not sufficient marks of true faith. And so James leaves us with a final mark of true faith in verse 27, the second half of verse 27. The faithful pursue personal holiness. The faithful pursue personal holiness. Look again at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Personal holiness. Now we might wonder, why has James kept this mark to the very last? Surely personal holiness is a priority in the Christian life. Peter, the apostle Peter, quoting the Old Testament law, reminds his readers that God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is a mark that is rooted in the character of God and surely the pursuit of holiness being set apart from the world and unto God should be the first mark. Has James tagged it on to the end here because it's unimportant? Well, no, it's vital for us. And the fact that James has kept this mark of true faith to the last shows its importance in the, the Christian life. Because ultimately, keeping oneself unstained from the world is the basis of all that James is going to teach in the remaining chapters. In chapter 3, James is going to instruct us to tame our tongue, a way in which we keep ourselves unstained, unstained from the world. In chapter 4, James will instruct us to avoid worldliness, a way in which we will keep ourselves unstained from the world. In chapter 5, he'll say that we ought to handle our money well, 
a way in which we keep ourselves unstained from the world. And so for James, the pursuit of holiness is a crucial, a vital, an essential mark of true faith. Now you may have noticed that James's language in verse 27 seems strange. Keep oneself unstained from the world. You probably haven't told your children to keep themselves unstained from the world, whether that's at school or somewhere else. You've probably told them about the importance of being different, about the importance of being like the Lord Jesus. Well, in a way, you're emphasizing the importance of pursuing personal holiness. And James also emphasizes those things. But that adjective, unstained, is so important to understand because it reinforces the importance of purity in the Christian life. And so James's instruction here is to keep yourself pure from the sinful, corrupt, perverse ideas and practices that the world wraps up in shining wrapping paper and, and a ribbon and offers to us. Because ultimately, sin leaves a gruesome stain, doesn't it? We take it, we taste it, and it stains us. Sin stains. And no matter how many personal or fairy adverts we consume, seeing that mum wash away the mud stains on our son's jeans, hoping that we can do the same, same. sin stains. Jealousy leaves us feeling bitterness towards others. Anger breaks relationships that may never be reconciled. Sexual sin is uniquely self-destructive. Greed leaves us feeling unsatisfied. We go on and on and on. Now don't misunderstand James. He was the half-brother or the brother of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he knows that the blood of the Lord Jesus cleanses us and keeps on cleansing us from every sin. And yet he also knows that sin has destructive consequences. And so Christian, in absolute reliance on the grace of the Lord Jesus, you must keep yourself unstained from the world. You must pursue personal holiness. That is what you have been called to as a, as a follower of the Lord Jesus. You must pay close attention to your life. What you say, what you do, what you watch, where you go, who you make friends with, so that you're pure and undefiled. This is true faith because ultimately God is holy and blameless and upright and just and pure. He is perfectly undefiled and you ought to be like him. You ought to reflect and resemble him. And so you must take this mark of faith seriously. God who dwells in unapproachable light has called you to this. And so the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 14, that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. How do you pursue personal holiness? Well, David Brainard a real hero of mine, and the missionary to the American Indians in the 1700s, 
who suffered extreme sickness and hardship and loneliness, dying at age 29, said this, O oh, for holiness, O oh, for more of God in my soul. Pursuing holiness is to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. It's to know him as Savior, but it's also to know him as Lord. It's to know his presence in us and his rich grace for us as we see him day and day in his word. And when we know him in that way, then we can say with the hymn writer, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious redeemer, my savior art thou. If ever I loved you, my Jesus is now. And so as we finish, James has shown us three marks of true faith. The faithful control their tongue. The faithful show practical compassion. And the faithful pursue personal holiness. We've thought about how to practice each of these three marks. And yet true faith ultimately begins in the heart, doesn't it? It doesn't begin with the tongue. It doesn't begin with the hands. It doesn't begin with the feet, but the heart. The Lord Jesus said, that good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And so if you leave church this morning simply promising that this Christmas time, you will stop gossiping. You will visit others more regularly. You'll put more hedges up in your personal life, but you don't examine your heart. You've missed the point. You've missed the point. These three marks of true faith ought to leave us seeing how much we have failed and how much we need God to transform our hearts. You need the Holy Spirit to come into your heart and to do heart surgery by taking out your heart of sin and giving you a pure and clean heart, a heart that is capable of giving God pure and undefiled worship that is acceptable in his sight. And so, as we leave this morning, let us examine ourselves. Let us examine ourselves and then let us quickly confess our sins to God. But, but, let us also trust the promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Let us examine ourselves. Let us confess our sin. Let us trust the promise and let us press on in true faith to control our tongues, to show practical compassion and to pursue personal holiness. Amen. Amen. Well, as we uh, come and to the table, before we come to the table, we're going to stand and sing, What Can Wash Away My Sin? Nothing But the Blood of Jesus.